I think uh, I think that's a pretty much a done deal. So uh, uh, we are continuing the series on Thanksgiving, and it's a series on gratitude, grace, and generosity. This is actually the last message of this series, um, and tying in these three ideas of uh, having a heart condition of gratitude and thanksgiving, having uh, it saturated with grace, and understanding that grace is an active ingredient both in thanksgiving and in generosity in, in, in all of our uh, giving, financial giving, serving. It's, it's really all about grace. And every scripture we've, we've looked at, there's been an emphasis on grace and then generosity. Uh, and particularly, <clears throat> the goal of the series is to encourage and increase the number of people who participate by in tithing, the biblical practice of tithing, which I taught on last week, but also to challenge people to give above and beyond that to alms, Alms is money that we use to help the poor, and that applies for people in-house. In other words, you know, if there's people in the church that are struggling financially from time to time, to, um, you know, they have needs that we can help meet them. But we also support um, several different organizations in our city that 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 their 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 entire mission is to uh, reach out to the needy, and so we support them because you know they're 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 experts at it. And, and that helps. <clears throat> and then we have a vision of also maybe doing more. And if we had more resources in that. So as a group together, if we pool our resources, obviously you practice this personally, individually. Every Christian is encouraged to uh, give to the poor, give alms in various ways that God puts on your heart, as well as to missions. But encourage the idea of, hey, for 2014 as a, as a goal, maybe if, if we get a number of us to commit extra, we can pool that money and use it more intentionally. So I talked last week about the topic of tithing. And if you missed it, please listen to it. Uh, you can download the slides and everything from online and you can see where we're coming from. But this week, we're going to talk about uh, really... Uh, an aspect of worship that I feel pretty passionate about, and that is that uh, giving, how giving financially is an expression of worship. Um, <clears throat> we're going to start with Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Kind of a longer section, but it's part of the Christmas story, so it really fits in uh, teaching on this on this time of year. So, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I always wondered what that looked like. The whole town was like, oh my goodness, what's going on? <laughs> When Herod's upset, everybody's upset. <laughs> all right. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, uh, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least uh, among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, who had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent um, them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, uh, bring back word to me that I may come and, and worship him also. <clears throat> Which he was lying. <laughs> when they heard... 
uh, the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over the young, uh, where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Alright, <clears throat> so that's the story. And we're just going to uh, unpack this a little bit and talk about how this applies. In that passage, we have the first record uh, uh, of anyone worshiping Jesus. And I've, I've told you before, you know, the first time something happens in Scripture is always significant. It kind of sets the, 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 the outline or the, it's the foundation block of, of, of any particular topic in Scripture. And here we have the first time, uh, Jesus Christ is worshiped. And so if you want to learn about how to worship Jesus, it just, it's, it's, Demonstrated in this story, quite, quite, uh, quite literally, quite, quite, uh, completely. And it's fitting that the first people that, uh, are recorded in scripture of worshiping Jesus are Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought of that? That, uh, here he is, he's the king of the Jews, but he's also uh, king of the whole world. And the first people that recognize that he does, he's deserving of worship are people from the east, people from outside. Uh, Jesus came not only as King of the Jews, but He came as King of Kings. He came as Lord of Lords. He came to rule over the whole earth and to have a kingdom comprised of every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And we see this right at this initial story uh, after shortly after His birth. <clears throat> so if this is the first example of worshiping Jesus... The question we ask ourselves is, well, what did the worship look like? How did they worship? And what can we learn from that? And it's interesting as we go through this that the whole koinonia, which is fellowship that I talked about earlier and tied in, uh, koinonia and worship look a lot alike. Because they are alike. (laughs) The first thing they did is they fell to the ground. As soon as they saw the child, they went into the house, they saw the child, they fell to the ground. So it literally means bowing to the to the ground and what we see here is physical action they did something with their body right they bowed down i don't know they they were probably as old as me maybe older <laughs> something you young people the knees tell me <laughs> they bowed down and so there uh, we and of course that was one of the uh, three characteristics of fellowship, biblical koinonia, is participation, being actively involved. And so they demonstrate by being actively involved. They got into it physically. Um, <clears throat> worship throughout the Bible, all worship throughout the Bible, involves uh, our whole body. All right? It's not just a state of mind as in agreeing to right doctrine or an emotional experience. Please hear that. Um, it really is. Uh, it's, it's something that integrates all uh, mind, uh, body, soul, spirit. Uh, it's, uh, worship is to be all of them, not just one or the other. And the church kind of goes back and forth emphasizing one or the other. Uh, in fact, these men, these wise men from the East, 
probably did not have their doctrine right. You know, who were these characters? We don't know where they came from. All right. All we know is that they knew enough that this was the king of the Jews and they came and they worshipped him. What they knew was who and how to worship. All right. So, and what this says is that you can have your doctrine wrong. You have stuff, you know, that may not be correct, but you can still enter into biblical worship. All right. Uh, and knowing how to, uh, how to worship, but more importantly, knowing who to worship and how to express that. So the first aspect was physical. Uh, it says they, <clears throat> it says they, they, they bowed down and worshiped him. Well, it's interesting because the words for, in the original language, says they bowed down means to physically bow down. And then the words and, wor- and worshiped him, that word means to prostrate oneself, which basically means to bow down. So in one sense, <clears throat> they fell down and then fell down. <laughs> All right. Now, it could be that they, it was describing that they, they fell to their knees and then they laid prostrate all the way. Uh, but the word also means uh, as an act of reverence or, or to adore. And so first there was bodily action, but then in their heart there was reverence and adoration. Okay? Certainly bodily action without the heart action isn't valid. But when you combine them together, when your heart is moved with adoration and reverence for the Lord, and then you express that in physical acts of, of worship, whether it be bowing down, whether it be dancing, whether it be raising your hand, whether it be singing, whether it be sitting still and listening, uh, uh, lying down and getting in a posture of rest, all of these things can be expressions of worship when they're combined with the heart attitude of reverence. Does that make sense? <clears throat> All right. And then <clears throat> it says, so and, and the heart action ties in with the koinonia aspect of intimacy and that their hearts were open to the Lord. And just as fellowship and, uh, uh, requires uh, openness of, of heart and emotionally being vulnerable to one another, in worship, we need to be open emotionally. We need to allow God into our hearts. And we need to pour our hearts out to the Lord. That that is how we worship Jesus. And the third dynamic of, of, of uh, worship that we see the wise men doing is that they opened their treasures and they presented gifts to Him, frankincense, uh, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so those things... All three of those, and I've heard people teach on the significance of those, and it's really great to study and get into the, the details of what all of those symbolize. I'm not really going to go into that today, but they're all extremely valuable. Uh, uh, gold is still one of the most valuable substances on earth, and, and, and frankincense and mirror are both things of, of great value. <clears throat> Some people actually, some scholars believe that these were not small little token gifts but um, uh, that they actually made Jesus' family wealthy. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to this. <clears throat> so, he, so just to, I hadn't thought about talking about this, but you know, Jesus was born to a, in, a, in a manger. In one sense, he was born homeless uh, to just a, a blue-collar family. He was a carpenter. They probably didn't have very much at all. Um, and then they come and these wise men come and, 
and leave treasures. And that those treasures actually could have been a storehouse of, of wealth that Jesus' family could have lived off of for, for his whole childhood. We don't know the details there, but it kind of like, for me, it's like Jesus comes and speaks to every person. Whether you're homeless, whether you grew up wealthy, it's just amazing how many things come, how many different aspects come together and that Jesus' life uh, can speak into that. But the point that we were talk, uh, that we want to focus on here is that they actually gave them, they gave, they knew that worship involved giving of su- substance of value. Okay, and so there was material action or contribution, which is the other third dynamic of, of fellowship or koinonia, church life. And so we see <clears throat> both the participation, or all three, the participation, the intimacy, and now we see the worship involving actually contributing, giving things of worth to the Lord as an expression of, of reverence, as an expression of adoration. You know, and the Christmas tradition of giving gifts to children is partly based on this story, and I think it's a great idea. <clears throat> and there's no question that some people get distracted by the true meaning of, of Christmas and make it, make it more about materialism, and we have to guard against that. But remember, it's a great illustration of how, and it uses, you know, these gifts were given, but the greatest gift that was ever given was the gift of God sending His Son, uh, Jesus Christ, as Savior to the world. Right? And so that's the real gift that we're celebrating when we, when we open up gifts. Alright, so that's Jesus being worshipped in the New Testament. Now we're going to look at a couple of Old Testament examples of, of biblical worship. And the first is, uh, found in Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, 16 and 17. It says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, uh, your God, in the place which he chooses, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord, your God, which He has given you. So, um, this passage is talking about, Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law. It's actually a combination of... Um, uh, a series of sermons that Moses preached before he died, and um, and so this is this is a summary of one of the requirements of the people who lived in the old covenant that three times a year uh, all the the males were required, and often they would bring their whole families uh, to a great feast, and they would come and they would not appear before the Lord empty-handed. They would have something to give. So from, from really from the beginning of Scripture, even going back earlier, uh, scripture, uh, scriptural worship has always included giving of offerings. Remember in Genesis, Cain and Abel. So first thing they did, we read about, was they were giving offerings to the Lord. And so there's something, I think, there's something hardwired into uh, being human. It's one of the ways we re- relate to the Creator is by return, returning to Him or acknowledging that part of the creation, you know, we, we give, give symbolically in a sense, 
to, to him. It goes all the way back to the beginning. But here in, uh, <clears throat> in Deuteronomy, you see that the word worship, the word itself is a derivative uh, from the word that we get worth. Alright? So when you talk about worship, you can't separate it from the idea of worth. Worship is actually expressing uh, and demonstrating the worthiness that we ascribe to God. And so when we sing about God, we're singing about how worthy we, we believe and we feel that He is. But when we give our offerings, it's financially or materially demonstrating how worthy we feel that He is in our lives. It is really an act of worship. And so I understand that, um, you know, churches and ministers have, have abused this in the past. And maybe you've been abused or they've taken advantage or misused. You know, there's no, you can always find, uh, examples of church leaders misusing church funds. The answer to misuse is not disuse, but proper use. Right? So when somebody does something wrong, you don't throw don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, right? And so, in uh, understanding the value of worship and giving in the context of worship really changes your whole understanding of of materialism and material goods, I think, uh, and that's how it has to work. <clears throat> so. Um, uh, every man had to come three times a year to the three great festivals of worship and celebration, and they were commanded that they could not appear before the Lord empty-handed. They had to bring something. It was an act. Um, and this kind of shows us that biblical worship was a, a two-way interaction between God and man. God received their offerings and worship, and in return, He would bless them, and He'd show up, and they'd experience His presence. And then the men, the people who came, would give, uh, you know, their, their offering and adoration, and then they would receive blessing and the presence and the goodness of God. And so there's a, a two-way transaction that re- worship really is, a two-way interaction. I like the word transaction because it's, we're used to that. We go in the store, we give them money, we get stuff in return, right? It's something we all understand. It's a part of life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the reason that is, is because God set it up that way so that we would understand how things work with Him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Everything in the natural is, is designed to help us understand our relationship with God because the ultimate purpose of life is to get to know God. So don't discount all the th- how things work. How things work often teaches us spiritual lessons. It's a whole other sermon. You can read about that in the book of Romans. All right. <laughs> okay. It's the same transaction that we see between uh, Abraham and Melchizedek when I told that story. Abraham gave a, a tithe and he received a blessing in return. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, and, and the word says that every person was to give as they were able. All right. According to what they had received. And so there's a, this whole idea of proportionate giving and exponential return. You know, no matter how much you give, the the presence of God and the blessing of God is worth far more than whatever you're giving. So the amount that you give isn't the significant thing. It's just that you're expressing, you know, uh, you're you're actually acting, you're worshiping in a way that demonstrates that you value uh, the Lord. And here we have this other story where there was a plague happening. 
and um, people were dying. And, and, and David, King David at the time, realized that something had to be done. And what he knew that he needed to make an offering to the Lord because uh, the, the nation had sinned and he wanted to uh, seek forgiveness. And, and without going into the whole story of, of why there was a plague happening, uh, we want to focus in on something David said when he went to um, uh, end this plague. Um, he said, uh, the king said to Aruna, which was a, a landowner, where David wanted to... Uh, build an altar and offer sacrifices because that's where the plague was happening. Um, <clears throat> and David said, I, I want to buy this land so I can offer an offering. And Aruna says, no. Uh, uh, says, uh, you can just have it. <laughs> Basically, And then David said, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. So Aruna wanted to give it to him, but the king said, no. I will buy it from you with a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. All right? So there's a, this deep conviction. <clears throat> so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and a peace offering. And the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. And just kind of tie in, you you see David actively participating in this. He built the the altar. He slaughtered the oxen. He he bought, he he contributed to it. His heart was in it. He wasn't going to do this, uh, uh, you know, he he wasn't going to do it unless it cost him something. And David is the, you know, wrote most of the Psalms, which is the worship book of the Bible. And here he really defines most of biblical worship. And here we see into David's heart that for him, worship has to cost something or else it's not genuine. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that has not cost me something. So he understood, and that reason that story is in there is so that we can understand that worship needs to have, there needs to be value connected with how we worship. Alright? It has to be substantial. So when we worship and separate Worship from everything that has material value, we're actually diminishing the place of God in our lives. Right? And so if we think that worship is in a, in a different world, like there's all the, the material world, money and everything like that, but then worship is this, this separate thing, it's actually saying, well, God, you're not part of this part of my life. And that's diminishing God. And you can't do that. <laughs> All right. Contemporary worship that reduces it, worship, to merely an expression of intellectual assent. Okay. So I'm going to try to, try to tackle two big uh, holy cows here. Uh, <clears throat> so intellectual assent means that if you agree to all the right doctrines, then you're, then you're, then you're right with God. All right. If you just agree to all, if you have all the information correct, then, then that's, that's worship. Or, if, 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 and a lot of the church kind of just like, it's just all about having all your ducks in a row doctrine. Now it's important to have doctrinal, you know, be understanding truth, but that's not the full of it. Um, uh, or, if you limit it to just emotional experience, 
And that's kind of where I think even a bigger section of the church nowadays is into this emotional experience. And so you have the worship bands and the worship concerts. And I'm not against all that. I love that. I love that if you get 15, 20, 30,000 people in the room singing worship songs and, you know, they, you know, in a, in a, you know, multi-million dollar facility with tons of lights and smoke machines and all that. You create that atmosphere and, you know, it's an emotional high. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? But that, if you reduce worship to just that, or even in a church like ours, and uh, um, you know, which is uh, worship, and we, and we draw and we feel something emotionally, well, that's important. But that's not the whole of what worship is. <clears throat> so contemporary worship that reduces it to merely an expression of intellectual assent or an agreement and or an emotional experience uh, lacks the biblical element of worship that ties worship uh, that ties our mental and uh, emotional experiences to the real world, okay, which is giving something of value. In other words, what I'm trying to communicate here is kind of a big idea, is that those intellectual, the intellectual aspect of worship and the emotional aspect of worship has to be connected some way with the real world, okay, with three-dimensional objects. Are you hearing me? Okay. <laughs> because that's when it becomes biblical, when you have all three. And that, that real-world expression is when you give something of value. Uh, move from a heart of adoration out of an understanding of, of the truth that Jesus is Lord. And this is what Jesus meant when He says, those who worship Me must worship Me in spirit and truth. You know, the Father is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and truth. And so it's having truth, objective reality, and spirit being in the right mind and heart. Um, biblical worship involves our whole being, every aspect of who we are as, as individuals. Um, thinking that worship should or even could be purely mystical or spiritual and separate from tangible giving, okay, is actually based on, on the Greek mind uh, understanding of the mind and, and on their understanding of philosophical understanding of the world called dualism and Gnostic heresy. Okay? So to think that you can have a worshipful experience without actually financially contributing of your material wealth to the Lord in some, some, uh, some tangible way is, is not biblical. Okay, it's just it's just not the re- it's not the full picture. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, and so that's that's how it makes this whole giving topic like to me not about money. All right, it's about being in right relationship with God and having all the aspects of who you are as a person and how you fit into creation expressing worship. Because biblical worship is incarnational, okay? And this is a big thing that differentiates Christianity from the other religions, is that we actually believe God came and became human, incarnate. All right? And Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation. And incarnate just means carne is meat, okay? Flesh. Incarnate means to, 
to enter into a bodily form. And so we celebrate that in the coming of Jesus. But listen, all of uh, uh, the way God interacts with humanity is incarnationally, all right? And so <clears throat> He wants to fill you with His Spirit, right? Yes. Where does this Holy Spirit dwell? In your body. Paul says, in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? This physical thing that we sometimes love and sometimes hate. Okay? There's something about it. God loves. And this is why this, uh, the idea of separating body from soul and spirit and chopping them up is actually deception of the enemy that leads to the fractured lives. And God's understanding and the way that we need to see is that we're all one whole. And we can see this in worship as well as koinonia and fellowship in that we express worship in all three ways. So worship should include the expression of God's worth in our lives and it should be demonstrated. And by giving materially whatever portion you're able to give, that makes it more real in the sense. It expresses it. So let's just take a minute and... Uh, um, you know, the idea that worship costs something, has value, and there's three different uh, aspects, that physical aspect of worship, uh, that participation or the physical cost, with, you know, as, as when uh, the, the wise men bowed down, okay, or when David, you know, cleared the floor and, and built an altar and, and, and chopped up wood, you know, how can you, I just want you to think for a minute in your life, how can you demonstrate worship through physical action, through participation? All right? I, I saw a guy in a gym this week, and he was talking to another guy in, in the locker room that he knew went to the same church. And the guy said, boy, I wasn't... Wasn't uh, Jeff's sermon great? And he goes, oh, I wasn't there. <laughs> and the guy said, oh man, he really did a great job. He did fantastic. It was amazing. So I, I happen to know Jeff. I said, oh, really? I said, uh, what do you preach on? What do you talk about? And the guy looked at me and went, uh, I don't know, but it sure was good. <laughs> <laughs> about ten minutes later, he still couldn't remember. He came up to me after I had uh, cleaned up a little bit. I was all ready to go. He said, you know, you're talking about God and Jesus, you know. But <laughs> So I want you to remember something. How can we worship, worship with physical action? And maybe that means dancing to you. Maybe it means sitting to you. Maybe it means meditating to you. Maybe it means lifting your hands. Maybe you can try different ways, you know. Do things at home. You don't want to dance to church. Get at home alone. Put on a worship music. You know, do a little jig. All right? Um, bowing down is really powerful. Bowing down. If you never bow before the Lord, do it. Sometimes I lay my Bible down and I bow down before the Lord as an act of I submit to the, the Word of the Lord. Jesus is the Word. Okay, how can you demonstrate <clears throat> uh, the cost and value of heart action, intimacy, emotionally expressing um, worship to Lord, and, and how can that uh, be a part of your life? So how can you get your emotions involved in the expression of the value that God has? And this gets like, like how can you get it deeper into your heart? 
And how can you express emotionally with worship? And maybe some people can do that with singing, but some people can't. You know, maybe you need to write it out. You know, maybe you need to you need to find a different pathway that you maybe you need to talk it out with some an individual to where you can get to a place where you're expressing heart action. And then finally, how can you do uh, how can you express worship materially by giving? And uh, whatever that is, maybe you can only give a dime, you know, but you give it out of a heart of reverence, uh, then it's legitimate worship. Uh, so take time, I hope, and remember that that's, 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 what worship, that's what biblical worship is. Bill has some announcements.